Welcome to season two of the Do More Good podcast. They gave us a second series. Oh, don't tell anybody. You need to kind of just go fast and seize those opportunities. We have no access to any kind of finance whatsoever, but I am drowning in brown <laughs> If your people aren't lined up behind why the change they're trying to make is important, nothing happens. What's the difference between work and home life? It doesn't mean you have to be on 24-7, but you have to be receptive to inspiration. Hi, I'm just heading through King's Cross this morning where I'm meeting Kenneth and Rob Woods. Rob has obviously been on the list for a little while and then he published a blog about inspiring leaders in sport. Don't switch off straight away because he then applied those learnings to fundraising teams and looked at similarly brilliant captains in charities. Perfect for Do More Good. Anyone who's met Rob will know this might be a long one. So settle in and I'll see if I can find them. Here we are, James. We are in Caravan, Granary Square, near King's Cross. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, f- I'm flushed with nostalgia, actually, because this is where you brought me on that fateful date when you <laughs> asked me to run a podcast with you. So it's oh, very nice gosh. to be back. Yeah, biggest mistake of my life, that was. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, it does remember. I mean, that was like uh, a year, yeah, just 14 over, months just ago. over a year ago. Yeah, yeah. good yeah, memories. Good yeah. memories. So here we are, beautiful morning, beautiful day. Just had the copies ready to go on today's podcast. We are. And we are joined by Mr. Rob Woods, uh, director of Brightspot, who offer coaching, in-house masterclasses, programs and training. Rob is an award-winning trainer, a professor of philanthropy, an author of several books, some of which he's, he's brought with him today. He's been the director of Brightspot for 11 years and before that spent 16 years at the NSPCC. And quite simply... If a fundraising conference doesn't have Rob as a speaker, is it really a fundraising <laughs> conference at all? <laughs> Welcome, Rob. Thank you. I'll take that one. I'll, I'll, I'm going to go and write that one down. Thank you. <laughs> Good to have you. So maybe just to kick us off, how did you end up at Bright Spot? Those um, two big stints there in yeah. your career. So I started in fundraising in the year 2000 because I worked for a funny little commercial organization doing import-export and I was getting more and more unhappy and I couldn't see a way out but I definitely knew that job was not for me mm. and I just found found an ad to work for the NSPCC I hadn't considered charities or fundraising at all before then but something about it clicked I thought wouldn't that be amazing somehow blagged my way through the interview and they took a chance on me was fairly clueless for at least a year or two I mean I you know I wasn't about to be sacked but I I honestly f- felt the pressure of this isn't very easy. I, I, you know, I have these conversations with these these potential donors or existing donors ab- about this amazing chance to save some children's lives, and it doesn't go anywhere. Why am I? N- so I got more and more depressed. Is too strong, but but I wasn't very happy that it was really difficult. Uh, and then gradually, I got tried some different things and I got more and more curious as to how I might get better at it. And I did a couple of those things, and over again, it wasn't like a, a overnight thing. But gradually, some of those things I did helped me get more skill and and crucially confidence. And some then some results followed as well. And then the weird thing was that when people would come for an induction at that large organisation, and you're supposed to someone has arrived in corporate, so you're supposed to sit with them for half an hour to t- tell them about your team. I would spend like hour and a half or two hours and they'd be about to get up and leave and I'd say no 
And another thing you need to know to remotely have a chance of raising money here is, that, <laughs> and I found that I was getting more. I couldn't bear to see another human being near me whose job was fundraiser about to walk into the many traps I used to walk into and, and I found my biggest driver was actually not raising money it was helping other people get better at this thing and then it was only a matter of time before I had the courage to start my own training company teaching some of those things that had helped me and initially my manager was very generous and, and she let me just do do my own thing I think initially it was one day a fortnight and then I was more successful so I went up to one or two days a week so so I was working at the NSPCC as their in-house trainer of fundraisers and at the same time as gradually building up my company helping other fundraisers and then um, whenever it was 2012 I went all in and and quit my NSPCC job altogether and so then I've been running Bright, what, what is now called Brightspot for six years. Wow. Is that quite a nice way to do it, that you were dipping your toe in the water rather than diving straight in at the deep end, but still fairly terrifying to do? Well, for, for me, yeah, of course, it, it, t- it takes a level of courage because I knew I could help NSPCC fundraisers raise more money, but there's something in my, you know, emotionally, did I quite believe that I could go out and charge someone else to look after their fundraisers for a day and at the end of that day those people would be that took a you know some courage but once I did two or three of those then that slotted into place and I, I had the confidence to dare to position myself as a consultant but for your first question I was really lucky that my manager was generous enough to let me do it that way interestingly I you know if the person listening is thinking well you know I've been doing this for a a while now as a fundraiser I know I'm good maybe there's benefits to being a consultant and they're they're toying with that idea one of my bits of advice is if you possibly can try try not to go all in because what you will usually find and I've had in the last three months at least three or four conversations with outstanding practitioners you know in whatever field Mm, And my prediction is several of them won't manage to s- remain consultants for long yeah. because they underestimate how hard it is to earn a big up a reputation and get a, you know, a, a pipeline of, of, of uh, potential customers and clients flowing. Mm-hmm. So they'll get s- they'll, they started off with this big ambition and they'll, it'll start with a slippery slope of, oh, I'll just do this interim cover, mm. this maternity leave for a, a year or whatever. And then they'll, they'll be back pretty much to a similar job to what I mean there's no disrespect to to that as a a way of doing your job Mm, but but it's interesting to me to me that if you can manage the risk by knowing you can still pay your mortgage even if you don't get a customer for two months that worked out really well for me yeah but I'm aware that not all managers are necessarily going to let you yeah. Do it that way. It's uh, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? One what, going on your own and becoming a consultant is you, you you do it around something that you're passionate about and you're obviously very good at, but then you forget the other fifty, sixty, seventy percent of your job is actually yeah. finding the clients, sending the invoices, marketing yourself, doing all that piece of it. Um, Rob, just picking up on one thing you said, which actually struck a chord with me and and, and appeared quite innovative at the, at the time, was having an in-house fundraising trainer. Yeah. Now personally and i haven't been around the sector as long as yourself and and james but is that is that a relative was that a relatively new thing at the time it was almost unheard of really 
I, at the time, I wasn't aware of any other organisation that did it. Mm. But Giles Pegram, who was the director of fundraising at, at NSPCC during that, well, for many, many years, and uh, who was leading during those two very successful, famous appeals, including the Full Stop Appeal, he has always been. Oh, something, I believe something is blindingly obvious to me, which is, if you want some fundraisers to succeed, don't just, you know, send them on a conference once a year. Yeah. <laughs> Google wouldn't do that. Innocent Smoothie wouldn't do that. Mercedes wouldn't do that. We're expected to change the world and save people from horrible suffering of breast cancer or help save a refugee's family. Why do we expect a fundraiser could do well at that on the bank of one day at a conference once a year? Yeah. So... Giles has always believed in if, if I want high standards and high results, then I have to p- take part of my time and my energy and, frankly, my budget as a leader and invest it in helping people learn. And the route he took, because the organization was so large, that it, it made sense and he could justify having a role that was solely focused five days a week on teaching. You know, but that organization has hundreds of fundraisers. Yeah, yeah. Very few organizations actually can justify a role that's purely about that because you know there's there's fewer numbers but nevertheless i think that was enlightened and mm. at the time lots of other large and medium-sized organizations didn't do it mm. i think there might be a few that do it a little bit yeah n- now i was going to say i think that's that's the kind of thing is is there, is there a trend hap- i mean obviously we're all hearing more about personal development about training and obviously you know your, your yeah. business is, th- sure. is this but i guess is, is is that a trend that you're seeing kind of growing more fundraisers actually being trained actually budgets being made available to improve your team and actually seeing that having an impact on on the amounts raised i'd love to say yes Kenneth. okay okay i wish there was more being spent on that (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i see what you're doing there um no i mean i i wish it were true Mm. that right now fundraising leaders and chief execs understood what you know, a, a commercial leader. You know, you know any you know, BMW or Google understands, mm. which is in this fast-changing world we live in. It's even if the mistakes of five years ago were some of them work now, they're not going to work next year. Yep. If the one thing everyone can agree on is change is speeding up, up and up and up, socially, politically, technologically, and therefore in the donor marketplace where we, if if everyone agrees it's going faster. It's absolutely insane to expect your your teams now to be skillful and at their best if you don't put serious time and energy and effort and frankly occasionally budget mm, mm. to get better. Mm. But ju- but just on that, actually, more of it is a mindset than needing a budget. What, one of my favourite stories is of SolarAid. I don't know if you've ever met Richard Turner or ever get a chance to to interview him on this excellent podcast but uh, that was ab- one of the astonishing growth success stories of the last 10 years in in charities not least because it's of a tiny organization achieving huge growth and uh, frankly achieving its mission they, they decided their mission was to get rid of kerosene lamps these horrible expensive dangerous things that are a, 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 an expensive blight and kill people in in certain poor parts of the world mm. And within five years of making that their mission, in Tanzania, there were basically it's all solar lights. Wow. There are it's insane success. Mm. And and when you ask Richard, how did you do that? He says one of the, in all seriousness, one of the ways was I started a book club. 
<laughs> what? Well, I, did, I, I, I didn't have a budget even to send people on conferences. Well, I couldn't, couldn't afford your courses. But what I could do is once a month on a Friday, anyone who wanted to, fundraiser or crucially not fundraiser, could meet for lunchtime and we would talk about any of the books that were relevant to our mission. Mm. And, and then one of the bits of his story I love is when he says uh, about 10 to 5 on a Friday... One of his colleagues, who was not a fundraiser, came to him and said, Richard, did you see this? And, and Richard said, no, what? These, this Google Impact Awards, Rob, I presume we're applying for this grant. No, I never heard of it. Well, look, the deadline's are on Monday at 2 o'clock. You <laughs> Long story short, <laughs> they applied. SolarAid got their largest grant to date because Richard's colleague, who was not a fundraiser, he was a frontline services person... Mm understood the overall mission and the, and the ways of working and, and, and why, what kind of donors we're looking for. Because of that book club, he knew what the mission was, what we're trying to do, and he spotted the opportunity, and then they got this huge gift. So mm. actually, it doesn't, it's not all about budget, but my question to the listener is, if you're a leader, do you send your team the signal that learning is important here, mm. or, do you, or at some level do they receive the impression that Oh well, it's just this add-on thing for HR, and we have to tick the box. Then we got it done by the end of the end of the year. And mm. they also changed their approach, did they not? So f- rather than directly going out looking for income, he changed or just shifted what they were trying to do to awareness raising, and that was the focus. Yeah, to mm. spread the message rather than directly try and raise money. And that's an interesting twist on that. Just a slightly different approach, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, again, picking up on something you said, Rob, earlier on, is that when you started your career, and I can kind of relate to that, having been quite new into into fundraising, was that confidence angle. You know, like having the confidence to actually be a fund... Like, fundraising is a lot about confidence for me. And it's about mindset and about putting yourself out there. And, And so, you know, how you can educate or coach people to be more confident think differently Mm -hmm. be more entrepreneurial be a bit more outward facing and outward thinking i think will actually in the end help you raise more funds or or raise awareness as you say so Mm. yeah it's a it's a really interesting point so we invited you on after we read uh, your latest, I think it's your latest blog. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, around the book Captain's Class, mm-hmm. uh, Sam Walker. And that focused on 16 super successful teams. Yep. So it's the All Blacks were in there. Uh, it was a Cuban women's volleyball team. Yeah. It was a men's ice hockey team from Russia. It didn't feature my Sunday league team from <laughs> really? the early 2000s. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's pr- that may <laughs> only be because because Samba didn't have access to the data. Possibly yeah, that. Probably. He, he's, Possibly sca- that. He's, he's a sports journalist, a sports fan, and is a kind of student of leadership and, and yeah. so on. And We it, were awful. We well, were so, but, awful. But, but, but crucially, he's, his starting point was to look at the data in all of team sport history, which shows not just quite successful teams, you know, the All Blacks generally, but the most successful All Blacks teams ever, or, or frankly, the most successful teams in all of team sport history, what are those? And you might have had quite a good Sunday League team, but he didn't see the Probably data. Not. Or you're actually you're shaking your head, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> no one here has ever seen me play football. Okay. So what did he find? What was the... I mean, okay. I've obviously read this so, blog post, so okay, I know so what's cou- coming. A couple, couple of things and the reason I love this book. Number one, he found that given how hard lots of people try at sport, there were 16 which were even more successful than all the rest. So probably there's some teams that the listener is thinking of, you know, a certain Man United team that on a, went on a winning streak for two or three years. Like, 
these teams were even more successful than probably the team you're thinking of. Um, and he was curious as to why. And when he'd studied all sorts of factors like who the coach was or whether they had a big budget, again, linked to our previous conversation, or of all the factors he could find, there was just one thing that these 16 crazily successful teams, teams like the All Blacks team that won in, uh, whenever it was, the, 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 row, yeah, the you know, late 90s, 49 consecutive victories in a row, including, you know, imagine, remember how, t- how many times those teams are playing up against... Australia and South Africa, let alone some Western Hemisphere teams that don't regularly play so well. 49 in a row. What was the common factor? The only thing he could find they had all consistently was that their winning streak started at a time when a particular player was made captain and it finished soon after that particular player left the team. And so he became... You know, some people would say this is true, and some would say it's not true. And he he became convinced that it is possible for one particular player to exert an extraordinary influence on all of those around them, that they lift their game, and that genuinely, you know, they become their output becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And he's saying there is, you know, it, there is a, they're rare, but there's a kind of leadership that is that impactful and valuable. And then he set out to, to look at those 16 particular crazily successful captains according to the data and look at what they did differently to and it was everybody else. And then crucially, the most exciting thing is the things that those 16 amazingly successful leaders do are not what most of us, here we are in this busy cafe, if I asked 20 people in this cafe, describe to me what you think a great leader is. Sam Walker found that most of the things these amazing leaders do, they're different to most people's imagining of the great leader. Interesting. So they weren't the big shouters in the changing rooms delivering any given Sunday speeches, that sort of thing. Yeah, crucially, none of these 16 made Churchillian speeches Mm. or the the speech like you see in most sports movies. They never, never did that. They, they communicated, but it was much harder to see. It was constant little checking in with everyone in their team regularly, but sometimes just an arched eyebrow, sometimes just a word or a look, so that from the outside you wouldn't necessarily see, ah, oh, leaders make great speeches. Yeah. He's clearly got the charisma of a, a motivational speaking leader. So that the overarching theme he saw is from the outside... You wouldn't necessarily... I mean, the, the Barcelona... Maybe um, European football fans would know who, who, who Puyol was in that amazingly successful Barcelona football team. But most people would, would have actually... If, if now you asked them, they'd have said Zinedine Zidane and guessed that Zidane was probably the captain, wasn't he? Mm. Whereas almost always, these captains didn't appear to be the big deal in the team. Yeah, they weren't the star player there. Mm. They weren't the star player and often the media or the commentators or the fans, even, they wouldn't necessarily know mm. how valuable this leader is. Mm. And that's a lot of the point is great leadership is much more subtle and not obvious. It's about what you actually do and communicate with your team at a much less obvious way. And too often when we, uh, you know, if, if the listener right now has to make an appointment and make a, uh, promote one of their team to become manager. I think a great challenge for fundraisers and, and the senior leader making that appointment is beware 
it can be surprisingly hard to, ri- to, to pick the best leader and often you get fooled and choose the shiny leader yeah. who's great at answering interview questions. I guess it's all about how we define leader and maybe that has, has changed somewhat because you think back through history and we can all, as you say, kind of Churchill and you, know, you can all think of those leaders but I'm sure there was people behind them that were actually the real leaders, that were actually motivating the teams, that were bringing people together and they were almost the, the figurehead that the media and the press yeah. and everybody yeah. could kind of lynch onto but actually when it came down to reality it was, it was someone behind the scenes who wasn't necessarily needed that confidence booster being that, yeah. that standout leader, that person who stands up on the... Uh, on whatever it might be and, and, and gives that amazing speech. So, yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. And, and it, what's hard about this is the shiny ones catch attention. Of course. There's just news on of my course. phone just now about Richard Branson's doing some new crazy thing with a submarine. I didn't even look at it. Mm. But, but what Daniel Kahneman uh, found in some research is for every Richard Branson who is a successful leader in business, mm. there are far more really valuable successful leaders in business who are they're effective but they're not flashy Mm. and that's a theme consistent with what sam walker finds in captain class and that's true of research i've done in with with fundraising leaders a thing that interests me about is is how how is it what what what, why does why did peel help that barcelona team in you know four four five years they won four Spanish league titles and two Champions League titles and a bunch of other what, what did he do ha, ha, coming down to the traits mm. and, and when you um, listen to how his former teammates describe him and ask them for stories about him almost all of them tell stories that go along the lines of well we were playing this really mediocre team it was late in the game and, and we were winning 8-0 <laughs> but Peel sprinted the length of the field to take the throw in. Mm. There was an intensity there. Or, you know, there's this one where they were winning 5 0 against a quite good team. And again, he sprinted all the way across the, the, the pitch to, to stop a celebration between two of his players because he couldn't bear the fact that A, it's disrespectful, but B, the winner in him didn't want their cel- over celebration to motivate the opposition. Interesting. And, mm. and the, if, if you're, you know, I think most normal sports fans would mm. think, well, he is a bit weird, isn't he? 5-0, mm. isn't there a point in a match when you should just ease up a little? And and, and that's what's special and interesting about Puyol and these other, other captains is that they're absolutely relentless. They're never going to stop mm. this dogged energy to give of their very all. And, and why is that so valuable? It's valuable because of this thing called social loafing. So about 100 years ago, the, the, the general idea was, if you want a, thing, a unit to become better, put more people in it, mm. and they'll have, you'll have more power, more, more output. And then this German engineer, whose name I forget, Max something or other, in 1910, did this experiment with a, a tug of war, where he had students pulling on a rope against each other, and he measured how hard you pull depending on how many people are in your team mm. and surprise surprise he found that if it's just you pulling on your own there's a level of effort the more people you put add to the rope your effort goes a bit down you can replicate it there's an experiment where you've got to shout as loud as you can in a room mm. if you keep putting more and more people into the shouty room on average each person's output goes down by about 20 percent mm. and he calls this social loafing mm. and what puyol says 
is it surprisingly hard in the 88th minute for all 11 players still to be giving of their all absolutely 100%. You can understand how even competitive sports people, when tired, might drop their level now and again. when they're And, and Puyol says, honestly, some of the reason why we were disproportionately successful than almost every other football team in the history of football is because when the the team know that i am a lead as a leader and relentlessly giving of my all that has an effect on everyone else's effort levels and social lo- loafing becomes much more rare and the exciting thing about this to me is i see the same in the best fundraising leaders yeah i mean we were never eight nil up so i could never write <laughs> <laughs> it down <laughs> you quote liz tate making similarly dramatic statements about dying in a ditch for her team and showing that kind of passion for the people that you are leading and supporting, depending on how you look at your role, also has that effect on your team, that there is trust and they say you're giving everything for the team and and presumably Liz's charges see the same thing. Yeah, well, so, you know, I'll leave the listener to make up their own mind, but every single person I've ever met that works for Battersea Dogs Home speaks about the culture there that is set by uh, she's she's moved on now uh, i I think to teenage cancer trust but you know for for years when when people from battersea dogs and cats home came on my courses a they they themselves had an energy and an oomph that many other fundraisers don't have and b when i talked to them about it they said well you can't not with 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 the way (laughs) we're led and the culture there a, in terms of high expectations, but B, in just when you really dig down as to how much their manager cared about them yeah. and in turn how much Liz cared about those managers. She, she only would appoint managers who shared this worldview of it's all about my people. How deeply do you care? And she rarely talks about, in my interviews with her, talks about donors or about money. She again and again Beating. wants to answer every question I ask her about the team and what can I do to help them succeed? Yeah, didn't you ask her what her focus was, whether it was on donors and or, or her people? Yeah, uh, and she said her people. No question, it's yeah. all about the, the the people and what that you know. But again, when I said, well, what does that mean in practice? What do you do, Liz? Well, one of one of the things I like was she said, well, you know, I've years ago when, when I arrived here and there were you know seven or eight fundraisers, we were raising around a million pounds. I decided I don't know all the answers. These people are closer to the ground, to the donors, to the data, to the... At least once a year, I'm going to meet everyone in my team, even and not my line reports, and I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions about what they, how they think it's going, what we could improve, how we could improve team meetings, how we could get a better, more enjoyable, more exciting, inspiring culture. Mm. Um, and I did, did that that first year, and it was good. And... Uh, and I said, do, do you still do it? She said, do you know, it's one of the biggest chunks of my time, my biggest commitments, but I still do it now. And I said, how many people in your department now, Liz, at the time when I asked her that interview for my commission on the donor experience report, she said there were 88 people. Mm. So, and, 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 but so, so there's a couple of powerful things that does. Number one, so many of the great things about the culture of that charity I've mentioned... She said, it wasn't my idea. I don't want the credit. Most of the weird and wacky and amazing things that make our culture so amazingly warm, friendly, committed, exciting, fun place to work. I couldn't have come up. They came from other people's ideas. 
So A, she's smart because she, she's using everyone else's ideas and then also people are brought in to do it stuff. It was their own idea. But B, crucially, when we come back to the other point, like Puyol, you know, uh, that was the time at which uh, the, the leader we're talking about was, uh, I think she was chair of the IOF convention. She was a trustee of at least one, if not two other charities. She's leading this majorly successful charity. She sits on the, the book... Goodness, she good, good. She doesn't start a podcast. Well, no, no, exactly. We'll be in trouble. Good. I mean, that, this is the point. Goodness knows we could all tell how busy she is, and yet even now she honours her agreement to sit down with me, the fundraiser who's been here for four months and is an account exec. She sits down with me and genuinely listens and wants to know my perspective. Mm. A, that makes me feel deeply cared for. And that goes back to a thing we were talking about just before we pressed record Kenneth mm. and that being one of the most important things yeah, any yeah. fundraiser could do but B it speaks about her work ethic like Puyol all his teammates knew he would uh, no one could out outwork him I think part of the reason people respect Liz so much and you know in her her new charity where she works now they're going to my prediction is they'll respect and work really hard there for the mission too is is how can you not how can you possibly ease off and social loaf like the people on the pulling on the rope if if you know that that's what what your leader is doing which yeah. is a, an interesting point and maybe Kenneth you might have um, some experience of this as well but people who tend to be promoted into those manager roles and become leaders or you can lead anywhere in a team we know that but yeah. um, came from being excellent fundraisers themselves so the transition from being a brilliant person at dealing with donors and raising money to helping other people to do that and a bit like great players don't yeah. necessarily go on to be great managers yeah that shift from yeah. doing the job to encouraging other people and helping other people to do the job yeah it's difficult yeah. different di- different skill set as well yeah. right I, I mean i think again picking up rob on what you're saying the the key thing that that comes out of this from what you're saying and what, and what we're all hearing around leadership is that listening ability like i you know and i know again like we, we hear it quite frequently but Feeling like you're being listened to at any part or any level in the organisation makes you more engaged, right? And so, I mean, developing people's skills in around listening. And, and I was going to ask Rob, if there's people listening to this, for example, and yep. hopefully there's, there's more than your mum and my mum, you know, if there's people listening to this that are maybe connecting with what you're saying around leadership, maybe recognise a few of those traits in themselves, mm-hmm. how, how can you help or could you give them any advice or guidance on how they can continue to develop in that in in that vein to maybe one day become become a great leader yeah so just qu- quickly i'll i'll pick up on the listening thing mm-hmm. because you know everybody knows a really valuable skill is to get better at listening and yeah. being truly present yeah. in practice i know i find it quite hard some yeah. of the time during my research that i mentioned earlier you know as part of the commission for the donor experience when i'm going out to 16 leaders which I who I heard were outstandingly successful not only as fundraisers but in creating fundraising happened that is donor focused not merely transactional cash focused and you know we've mentioned Liz Tate and Richard Turner is another one and Joe Jenkins is great at both doing and explaining this stuff when I sort out those kinds of leaders and and try to find out what do they do Yes, one of the things is they make more time for the people in their teams. Mm. So at its simplest, one of the things that Richard Turner at SolarAid said is 
you know, again, he, he, he got it off a podcast, but he, he, he had always intended to stick to his one-to-one supervision conversations with his line reports, mm. but, but busy fundraising, often it would get bumped because there was a donor to worry about, yeah. and he said, like, just do this, it said on this management skills podcast, at minimum half an hour every week or even just half an hour every fortnight but never bump it it's it's more important than the donor mm. and he started doing that and he said rob you wouldn't believe i was amazed how amazing the effect of just week in week out giving each of those people half an hour so step one mm. what these leaders do is they give time to mm. it even if occasionally god forbid they might their listening skills might not be perfect during the half hour if it's in the diary and they're giving it time, that's one thing. Yeah, just yeah. To, can I just jump in on the listening yeah, thing? Because yeah, yeah. there was just a point. You mentioned Joe Jenkins, and yeah. I read a beautiful story about uh, yeah. Friends of the Earth. He and his director of campaigns or director of communications, it began with a C. Yes. They would swap the updates that they gave. Yes. So Joe would give the other directors really? updates. Yes. So it showed that they were listening and were engaged with each other yes. and were interested in the other side of mm. what was going on in the yeah. business. And, yeah. and really crucially, like, you know, when we're talking about shiny leadership that might not actually be very good leadership we we people just get stuck in the world of what is visible and obvious mm. and and there's lots of leaders and charities who say the right thing but because it's not congruous with what they do that that their teams aren't moved by it but whereas what, what joe, joe is congruent the reason that i you know one of the reasons why he and others helped Friends of the Earth achieve that extraordinary growth and success story of the Bee Campaign is they really meant it. And, and so they didn't have to keep telling you, we really want you to be joined up. We really want you to help and understand the campaigning colleagues and the comms colleagues, not just the... If, because so often his actions were to, to speak on behalf of campaigning mm. or policy... It was the actions that spoke louder than words. Mm. People follow what you do more than the meta signals rather than what you tell them to do. Yeah, and actually, just whilst we're on the listening subject, um, I came across something recently that I, I thought I'd try to put into practice. So, as you say, Rob, maybe it's just being on the podcast. You know, we like to talk. We're all like, we like, we like to kind of explain ourselves and, and represent what we're talking uh, about. And maybe not the best listeners, but this podcast that I listened to recently talked about going into meetings and being the last person to talk you know rather than kind of going in there and giving your opinion and jumping in and interrupting people it was just kind of next time you go into a meeting just try to be the you know just stay silent for it and I tried it I don't do it now I must admit I did it a couple of times (laughs) but actually it was you know that acknowledgement of like just giving other people the room to, to, to put their opinions forward I came out of it so much more and just making a conscious effort well even in sort of one to ones and things and taking a coaching approach so letting the person that you're talking to solve the issue themselves because yeah. they'll talk themselves around into the answer eventually if you've got a couple of days sometimes yeah. but they yeah. will find the answer and then that so gives them the trust and the confidence and the initiative to go and do that in the future yeah what's, what's really interesting about that is Sounds great in theory, but but it's very interesting. Why don't we all necessarily do it as often as we could? Uh, and when my colleague Charlie White from Le- Vivid Leadership and I, when we are teaching leadership skills, we teach a thing called inside-out leadership. You know, people often think leadership is about how do you get people to do stuff? 
and and Charlie White and a, a great leadership speaker called Penny Ferguson who taught me a lot. What, what, what they teach is actually the best leaders, it's about what are you doing yourself, not what are you trying to get others to do. And and the easiest, here's a really simple practical way you can do that. this. And what's good about it is it, you're probably going to get a chance to practice it t- today. If you're listening to this in the morning, today you'll have a chance to practice this. At some point in the next two days, someone might, might even be at home or just as likely at, at work, someone will come to you and say, oh, I really need your help. Couldn't you, what shall I do about this sponsor? Or that, you know, that, that meeting's fallen through. How am I going to, can you help me? And in that moment, you have a choice. And if you go the path of least resistance, A, because it's very human to, and B, because there isn't much time in a fundraising day, and you just give your opinion and give the answer, well, it might help a bit, what Penny Ferguson and Charlie and I would encourage you to do is to pause, resist the urge to have the satisfaction of feeling clever and solving something in that moment. Mm. But in that moment, I dare you to say, well, good question. What, what do you think? Mm. And it sounds easy for me to say it now, mm. but in practice, it's so very tempting as a leader to just give them the answer yeah. because as a leader, you've probably just come from a difficult zone with some trustees where you were out of your depth and here's, oh, goody, here's a way I can help on something I'm easy, I'm good at, because I used to be good at sponsorship. It's so tempting for your own ego reasons and because you want to help them to just give them the answer. Them the answer. But Penny you're Fer- supposed to know the answer. Oh, and the yeah, and isn't that what it? leaders do? Is they know the answers. Yeah. Mm. And whereas what we would say is in that moment, if just try it out, have the courage to say, oh, I don't know, what do you think? And then often they'll say, well, I don't know, I came to you, that's why I'm asking. But then if you, crucially... If you hold your nerve and you genuinely believe people usually have many of the answers themselves, say, well, I'm not expecting you to have all the answers. I appreciate that's why you came to me. But what do you think some of the issues are? You know, and and, and maybe an idea or two that might be part of the answer. If you do that and you look at them and they sense you mean it, my experience is almost always the person you're helping start to say, well, you know, actually it's going wrong because of this. And I think a lot of it's because of we just emailed. And in that moment, even if p- later on in the conversation, you join in and help them with some of the answer in that moment, it, it did take longer. But what you do is you start to turn the whole culture around to be one where you believe everyone is mostly pretty capable and able to solve stuff. And they start thinking of themselves far more, A, over time, it saves you time because they don't keep coming to you. B, just like what Liz did, lots of their answers are better than yours anyway yeah. because they know what the sponsor said in that the first place. It really helps when you don't know the answer oh. as well. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that the, the Samaritans in their training for, for listeners on the phone, you yes. know, it's very much about someone phoning the Samaritans in that dire situation, whatever it might be, and they're phoning you for, for the answer and guidance, you know, maybe they're suicidal, but it, they're all about reflecting back and, you know, what do you think and, and, and what do you think and asking the right questions and, uh, and, and just by the nature of doing that, that helps the person in whatever state they are try and move forward from that mindset or wherever they are at that moment and I, and, I mean you know I've seen it myself it, it really does They're it really does that, work yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that when I was at the NSPCC you know maybe one in 10 one in 15 people who work at the NSPCC as fundraisers also volunteered for Childline yeah there was 
there were and still are loads of amazing people who work for that organisation. But now and again, you'd meet some people who, who weren't great at their jobs. I never found someone who wasn't outstanding as a fundraiser mm. who also volunteered for Childline. That's interesting. And, you know, broadly, there's two obvious reasons for that. One of them is this thing we're talking about. It mm. just trains you to be present yeah. and care and listen more. Yeah. But, but also, fairly obviously, you're connected to the cause week in, week out, and that's a whole other topic, mm. uh, which we probably haven't got time to talk about now. So are there other things that managers, maybe managers when they're under pressure, maybe financial targets hitting, that managers can tend to do that maybe we want to try and avoid doing? Yeah, uh, I can totally see how there are lots of traps you can fall into. Uh, there's an organisation I know that had been doing well and growing year on year and then a new chief exec arrived and that chief exec was t to say unfriendly towards fundraising uh, is to put it really mildly he just didn't get it didn't care just expect people to work hard like in a commercial organization and the results to follow but he and his senior leader team did little or nothing to help the whole organization help fundraising mm. and guess what happened <laughs> the growth stopped it flatlined and then it declined and morale became awful a bit like james's sunday league team right <laughs> Well, honestly, bad morale. <laughs> what, what happened was everything became so short-termist. Yeah. Everyone started measuring stuff. Senior managers wanted more and more measurement. And the more the fundraisers got measured week in, week out on your figures and your numbers and your KPIs and everything, A, the less they, they, time they had to actual talking to donors, B, the less they felt trusted, mm. uh, and, and C, the less they felt they could take risks to do the right thing for the donor, even if it might not fit into a KPR box and I was very interested in this organisation and it, interestingly there came a point where the even the middle managers started to believe the nonsense because they were starting to see less you know, risk taking and more apathy uh, I, have a, I have a colleague who was really curious as to what, what signals the senior leaders were sending to the middle managers and, and what they did is they looked, there was an all staff email group or all managers email group where if you were a middle manager, a manager of a team in that organization, you received emails to a certain, you're in a certain email group. And he looked at what the topics were that those head, team managers received. And, uh, and he created a bar graph of the various topics that they received information about. And 56% or so was finance and spreadsheets. Fill this in now or you're all late. Um, another was this has gone wrong, please don't do it again. Another one, <laughs> about 4% was general information which might help you. No percent was information about how we want you to help donors feel, the donor experience. And what happens when pressure is on and everyone's asking you to look down the back of the sofa to make the crisis, we've got to get some money in by the end of the quarter. It causes everyone in fundraising to become tighten up become more short term mm. to let go of their human instincts to listen and care mm. and to just be transactional and try and get the money mm. and what the best leaders in this research i did for the commission on the donor experience wh what they did is the opposite of that and they understood that absolutely if our organization is to thrive 
financially and therefore able to do dramatically more to help us achieve our mission, like Solar Aid did, like that amazing growth at Battersea from 1 million to 20 million in, in seven years or whatever. The organizations that buck the trend and grow seriously in the medium and long term, those leaders do not micromanage. They, they spend more time on their people and they care about that. And as I, we've said, they, they, they give it time and they show up and they're, they're real and authentic about it. Yeah. But the overarching way of summing it up, and when Joe Jenkins said this to me, I, it, it really resonated for me, is he says... We have this traditional idea of what leadership is that you know, comes from John Wayne or you know, old Hollywood movies of the all-powerful, all-knowing leader who sees the whole game, the whole campaign, and cleverly, they're cleverer than everyone else, they have power and they move these chess pieces around on the board. That, that notion of leadership as the chess master... Actually, it never worked because people weren't empowered if, you, if they only came back to you to ask what they should do next. But it's especially not going to work now when there could be a tweet that happens tomorrow morning which completely changes what your fundraiser should say to a donor at 10 o'clock. Mm. Everything is faster now. You could sort of get away with it in the old days when communication was so slow. But right now, everything is happening so fast you have to quite deliberately design a culture which, A, empowers all of the people in the charity, mm. like SolarAid's colleague, all of them to know what the common goals are. Mm. You, know, you need your event fundraiser to know which top 10 corporate donors we're looking for at the moment. You need your corporate fundraiser to know in depth, actually certain things about the events portfolio that will really provide growth and crucially you need those people to know the overarching programs or services mission or campaigning everyone needs to be have a shared consciousness of what we are all trying to do and old leadership does not achieve that because everything's so siloed driven and you miss opportunities all the time so what Joe Jenkins says is rather than chess master leadership you need to strive to be a leader who is like a gardener who nurtures and encourages and provides the, creates the environment in which everyone in your organization grows and becomes at their best and is empowered to do so they have the information available to them to do so and they feel they can take a risk because they feel you trust them Gardener leadership, not chess master leadership, was the biggest conclusion I came from interviewing 16 outstanding leaders. And Joe Jenkins explains that better than anyone I've ever met. And that, I mean, that, that rings true. I think we did, a, we did a podcast quite earlier on about talking about great leaders. And we probably gave a few examples then. But, you know, whenever I think back to, to my career or even playing in rubbish football teams on a Sunday, you know, and being around great, great leaders. It was those that nurtured, that allowed you to flourish, that allowed me to be my personality. It didn't try and control and put me in the boxes to this is what you will do and you're plugged into the machine, now go and do your job. It was those that thought about it a little bit differently, looked at people's strengths and weaknesses, embraced their strengths, encouraged them to explore being an individual rather than trying to fit in a box. So it kind of rings true. And, and obviously the, the, the data says so. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, you know, 
my data is not as, for my report, isn't as robust as, as the sports data that you just cannot argue with mm. for Sam Walker's book. But certainly after 18 years of working in fundraising and quite a lot of those of me working with and coaching successful fundraising leaders, my experience and my interviews mm. with these 16 very successful donor-focused leaders does chime with that. But there must be, playing a bit of devil's advocate here, yep. there must be other ways of doing it, right? I mean, you were saying that yep. there's the, the, the strengths of that and that maybe leader or fundraising leader who is maybe a little bit more dictatorial and and we must have seen success with those types of leaders as well, right? How would you, yeah. how, how so, can that exist? So, doubtless there are case studies commercially and in charities where you get short-term success in that way. Okay. My personal experience is of, you know, it, it's quite possible for a very high achieving, demanding leader to arrive in an events team, a corporate team, a major gifts team. Mm. And because they have certain good skills and, in my view, an unhelpful, relentless pressure on everyone to perform mm. over and above creating a nurturing, supportive culture, wow. they ca you can absolutely hammer the machine mm. and in the short term you get some results my experience is though it does not last yeah. because the more you push 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 and you don't take after you know, look after and nurture the machine itself mm. over time it's unsustainable people leave morale goes down yeah. the wheels fall off mm. and so if what you're really looking for is medium and long-term growth because that will absolutely do the best to help this particular hospice really look after even more people in your in geographical area with these challenges if that is your goal mm. my advice after all of this studying is to nurture within yourself the leadership qualities which are not about short term aim for culture and helping teams thrive rather than only focus on short-term results. So I, was, I was reflecting then on a, on a conversation I had with my friend who works in, in, in the private sector and, in, and the business that he works with is, is aiming for an exit, for example. So yeah. they've just brought in a leader who is very much, you know, has an objective to get this company to a certain profit line yeah. uh, to make the organizational changes required so that it's appealing for someone to come in and that, uh, another organization to come in and buy it. And of course, in that situation, the management style or leadership style that we're maybe referring to here yes. might work in the short term. But as you say, in the, in, when you're looking at longer term it tends not to, and, to make people and very indeed like I, I, I've, <laughs> I wish I was an investor I'm not an investor but I'm from what, what little I've read about it and listened to about it I'm given to understand that smart investors who might buy your company at that stage they don't only look at really banal measures of of profits right now mm. and where you've growth they look at the the deeper processes and the more long-term indicators that this is a, a more long, you know, that you've put things in place. You know, again, if you think of some of the more heralded companies right now, I bet if we looked at Innocent Smoothie now, we were going, considering buying the company. Part of the reason why we might think it was a, a good investment and worth this much, not just that much, is because of what we saw about the, the, the culture. Yeah. And, yeah, the th yeah. and that is actually just as valuable as, as to yeah. why I might invest mm. as the profit that we've achieved or the ROI over the last two years. So what you're talking about in terms of the founding, the founding in, in, in this report and, and what we've been speaking about for the last hour, do you think that's also 
could we be speaking broadly about business in general here then, do you think? Or are we just quite specific about fundraising in, in the charity mm. sector or these trends that we're seeing out yeah. there as well? Yeah. So just to caveat this, occasionally I'm on a course uh, teaching fundraisers because that's my, my passion and is what I've obsessed about for years. And someone says, so would you... Could you teach this to my husband? He's a lawyer. Or could you come and... <laughs> and over the years, now and again, I've said yes. So I've got limited experience of helping companies succeed. To do Sunday league football teams. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. No. I, I help my son with his football. But uh, honestly, I can't give a, an expert answer because cause I, I've, I've, I haven't spent years and years grafting no, at, at that thing. As as a, as a person who who's reads, reads business books and and so on, my observation is absolutely yes. There's a, a really interesting book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, which explores this in depth. And there are loads of examples of high achieving organisations. Uh, interestingly, they're not just commercial organisations. Some of them are, but then he looks at sports teams that are very successful. There's a team of very successful bank robbers. <laughs> There's all kinds of... Th- where teams are crazily successful, better than everyone else, yeah. he studies it, and it, again, uh, whereas Sam Walker in the book I've been talking about, mostly in this podcast, looks at the captain. Mm. This one is, what, are, what is it about a culture? What, what culture is it? that makes the difference that again helps the team you know everybody kind of add up to a greater contribution and lots of those examples in that very excellent book i would highly recommend what got you success until now is not going to help you get growth and success in the future and a challenge for our listener is probably if someone who's smart enough to listen to a, an excellent podcast while they're commuting has understood that getting like st- having an interest learning and so on is a thing that's going to help that so probably your listeners are better than many other fundraisers who, who aren't smart enough to keep educating themselves they're good fundraisers as well i'm guessing most of them the challenge is when they get promoted or if, if the leaders listening to this that you get tempted to carry on doing what you did do which was worry about the donor worry about micromanaging the event if events is your thing and you have to if I'm going to remotely have a work-life balance, I can't possibly keep meddling in all of this stuff. It's just not only... It's not about caring about your team for its... I mean, that's a, a lovely thing to do as well, and by mm. all means, buy into that if those are your values. But if, if your biggest passion is raising more money and making the world a better place, the only sustainable way I think you achieve growth is not having to do it all yourself. Yeah. You put disproportionate energy into helping others do it. There's one story that I remember from that book, The Culture Code, of this um, this guy in New York who's a restaurateur, and I've forgotten his name because I haven't read the book for ages. But he's he's got um, he's got not yeah in in that country it's astonishingly hard to get X number of Michelin stars. This guy has not one restaurant with a bunch of Michelin stars. He's got about twenty of them. Wow. He's but by, by most measures he's the most successful restaurateur in that country and all the world. And he tells a story of, of when he just had one restaurant and then he got persuaded to set up a second one. The, the first one was going fine and then he drove across town to the other one and he was mortified to discover that something had gone wrong. And what happened was the, the, the diners had, you know, they were quite picky, 
uh, you know, ten minutes into their meal, someone decided they didn't like the fish, so they ordered the chicken instead. You know, the head waiter said, oh, that's fine. And they, they brought them the other meal as well. And then at the end, the waiter charged them for both meals. And maybe some restaurants would do that because, you know, it, there wasn't anything wrong with the first dish. <laughs> but the, this guy hit the roof because the way he had always run his restaurant, he said, like, this is insane. My whole ethos is you treat them like they were visiting your home. Mm. That is my culture, my ethos. How can you... And in that moment, he realised what he had done is he had spent... He thought running lots of restaurants was about cooking great food. In that moment, he realised his job is not cooking great food and having a building a brand. His job, almost all of his energy needed to be, how do you help the people in the other restaurant, when you're there, not there, know what to do? And so he, he, you know, he put disproportionate energy into teaching every single waiter there certain principles of what it is to be a waiter in one of my restaurants and, and you know, lots of them sound like bland cheesy aphorisms or management cliches that get tweeted and mean nothing but because the guy of this restaurant is congruent and has tons of stories he teaches you if you work in that restaurant examples of you know one of his ones is put me out of business with your generosity uh, and so he tells a story of how you know this particular di- diners were out of town. They'd come up from Wyoming to see their daughter in New York, and they're all a bit overall by how flash and expensive it was. And the the restaurateur says how proud he was of the waiter who gave them, on a whim, the most expensive bottle of wine on the entire menu just as a present <laughs> to welcome them to New York. Brilliant. So so whereas other people would say put me out of business with my, my generosity or other people would say be really donor focused mm. no I when you hear that story you really start to understand what it means and you know and, and Liz Tate tells a story of of one of her volunteers at Battersea spending two hours on the phone talking to an old lady about her cat mm. and she says that I know that most organisations would think this was inefficient and it wouldn't fit into the KPI. We should have a maximum of no more than 25 minutes talking to elderly donors about their cat. But when you hear Liz say, two hours, and I was so happy, I gave her a prize for it. (laughs) What great leaders do is they they realise how hard you have to work to teach your people how serious we are about being donor-focused or analyzing the data or what you know, whatever the the common smart fundraising principles are that my guess is lots of your guests talk about i'm saying the risk is that washes over the listener or the reader of our blogs because they think yeah, yeah i've heard that one listen to your donor yeah yeah i've heard that one be, be really careful to segment what the best leaders do is they realize you have to show people with these extreme examples of just how it, you know one person extraordinary woman amazing fundraiser called Lois Wolfe from the then National Library of Scotland she came on my Major Gifts Mastery program and between days two and three she went out she did certain things she got on a roll she was going on a, a, a trip to Hong Kong so she wanted to kind of set up as many meetings as possible but in six weeks she managed to book 56 meetings with rich people who could potentially care about National Library of Scotland. So I say that, tell that story to my, my learners on my Major Gifts Mastery program, 
because they've all heard it's quite important to try hard to get a cup of coffee with a donor. And I say, listen to these five strategies I'm about to teach you. If you really get your head around it, here's what happened to Lois Wolf. She got 50... If you hear the extreme example, it jolts you out of your complacent thinking. Oh, you think you know, you know what, what it means to try and use the phone to get him. And I say, I'm totally clear that not everyone on my course is going to get 56 meetings. But I am telling you, if you focus disproportionately on how important it is to get a cup of coffee with one of your donors, it's easier in practice, actually, than you had thought once you really study it. Here's some techniques. But the most important thing is you have to get your head around it. The fact, A, it's possible. It's possible. And B, yeah. it's so important if you want to raise more money. Mm. So, so I'm all, that's why I, my company is called Brightspot. If I told us, you know, lots of people on my courses get twice as many meetings. But if I just told you that story, your, your, your inner, inner belief remains unjolted. Yep. But if I tell you about Lois, something about that might get your attention to mm. think, oh, you know, mm. in that restaurant, the head waiter really revises his opinion on what generous customer service looks like. Mm. On my courses, mm. corporate or major gifts when I give you these examples of just what is possible when you do it this way suddenly it shakes your belief of what is possible and all along most people knew most of what the tactics and strategies were what was holding them back actually was their inner unconscious belief of is it possible even to to, to expect more or you know no, no one around me was getting more than a couple of coffees a week or a couple of coffees a month so so we just potter on with an accepted mediocrity of the six colleagues you've got, whereas I'm obsessed with finding the disproportionately successful people, most of whom are freaks, like Sam Walker's captains, they do certain things in a really extreme way, like peel. That's insane to get upset about celebrating in the 89th minute when you're winning 5-0. But, but it's those finding the extreme bright spots... You know, he's, he's written about 16 bright spot captains who are even more successful than all the other good captains you've ever heard of. My view is I've ended up getting, I think, more skillful and more successful of, at fundraising and what I do over the years because I, I relentlessly try and find bright spots because those ones will inspire my inner, inner sense of what is possible and then it's easier for me to try harder to do what it takes to get better at the thing. So if people want to hear more of these stories, how do they find you? Oh, yes, I suddenly realised I was going off on one and we're probably close to time. But um, You can find me at brightspotfundraising.co.uk and I'm on Twitter at at Rob underscore Rob uh, and all of the details and and the blogs and hopefully soon even a podcast about these sorts of ideas uh, are going to be there at brightspotfundraising.co.uk Brilliant. I think, uh, you know, Rob, uh, hearing you talk about that, I think what's, you know, and, and obviously we're doing this and, and this podcast was set out because we wanted people to kind of start to think differently. We wanted to put forward some different views. We wanted to get people on like yourself who can talk and, and hopefully inspire people. And so, you know, inspire people to try something different. And, and, you know, just from what you were saying there, it's about sometimes just not accepting the status quo, yes. not accepting what everybody has told you for your career about you're great at this, you're not so great at this, yes. or what your mum and dad or your teachers or whatever told you are oh, you're really good in this. It's just about being an individual, pushing yourself to the ultimate boundaries, and just ultimately anything's possible. Yeah. Um, I, and if we could all be a bit more like that, we might even win a game. 
might even win a game. Well, well I was going to say, just, there's a, a couple of things. I know we're, we're close to time, but number one is most people I know in our sector, they would do more for others than they would for themselves. Mm. They, cared, they cared deeply about others. So if part of your motivation for, for doing what you've just said, which I totally understand is sometimes quite hard, it takes courage, you know, it, it sometimes takes an effort to, to actually get get the book out on the commute rather than just slump in the seat to, to, to dare to do a sli- something slightly differently with your team or in a team meeting those things are not easy they're hard but if if part of the reason you do it is not only for your own growth and success but because of the signal it sends to someone else yeah. around you who might be in that same team meeting but who notices that you're it's going a bit better for you and they they too might be inspired uh, that to me is, is is a helpful motivator because because often we'd do more for someone else than we would would for our own success levels necessarily and lastly is the reason i wrote this blog about the captain class one of the biggest takeaways for me is it's is it's it speaks to those of us who sometimes feel like underdogs who who sometimes feel like we're not very good at interview or Mm. we don't have these shiny personal you know you go Mm. to conferences now and someone's teaching how to build a personal brand and all. And they don't have 20,000 <laughs> followers on Twitter or... <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so I, I'm all, all, all in favour of pe- people who know about that teaching us to improve our skills a bit in that area. Yeah. But my main thing is, if right now you feel a little bit like the ugly duckling, yeah. Yeah, I, I, when I was a fundraiser, I, I, I felt I wasn't as skillful as the, the other people in my team. I felt I was a misfit. I felt I, you know, I wasn't, do, wasn't doing very well. Actually... All along, it turns out I was quite good at some of the things which are more important mm. to do with really caring, to do with, you know, they, they, did I talk about um, Piol was described as a mere water carrier yes. but yeah. by Cantona, and he said, I'm proud to be the water carrier, yeah. to, to, to give the passes to the more skillful players. I do whatever it takes to help this succeed. If right now you, you have an inner desire to do what it takes to help rather than necessarily be drawn to get the glory or look good in front of your manager all the time, then I, my recommendation is to read the book called The Captain Class because it might just awaken in you a realisation that actually maybe you have many of the qualities that actually in the medium and long term help you be more successful than the so-called shinier, big me, big leader qualities yeah. ever did. It's a great way to finish. That's, That's absolutely cool. brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, Rob, that's been really good. Thanks a lot. And uh, we've got all the details of where people can find you. And good luck. Anything, any lasting, last last thoughts, final thoughts before we no, go? I, I think um, I'm famous for saying, and one last thing, and one last thing. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Just say I've, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. It's, it's great fun. Um, and I'm going to carry on listening to your wonderful podcast. Goodbye. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, guys. We'll see you soon. Before we go, quick quiz for you, Kenneth. Uh, Twitter. Do more good pod. Instagram. Do more good pod. Website. Do more good dot UK. Uh, reviews. Please leave them on iTunes and all other good podcast providers are available. MySpace. Uh, little K Dizzle, still going strong. That goes in there. That goes every week. We don't need to do the others. That's great. <laughs> little K Dizzle.